Morning. My name is Don Pizzotta, and I serve as one of the elders here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. And this morning, I will be continuing our occasional series entitled Church Life in the Book of 1 Corinthians. You might remember when Pastor Bert is not preaching on Romans chapter 6 through 8, some of the other elders have been walking through 1 Corinthians in this series. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you can find our passage on pages 952 and 953. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 2, 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for this opportunity that we have to gather together to worship You. And Father, we pray now that as we open Your Word, that You would open our eyes and ears to the truth of Your Word that we might be more and more conformed into the image of your Son. 
And we ask this in his holy name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are continuing the series in 1 Corinthians. It's entitled Church Life. And one of the implications of that title and our series is that church life is the understanding of being together. Church life is about unity. Now, unity means the state of being united or joined as a whole. And unity is not just an intellectual exercise. Unity is not just what we believe or that we believe the same things. It is those things, but it's more than that. It's not just that we recite the same covenant, although we do, and that is good. But doing these things does not mean that we have unity. Unity is a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures, especially when we consider that we were created in God's image and designed to live in community with one another. When we do those things, it's a blessing. The idea of unity and life in community reminds me of a German theologian and pastor and author whose name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A Bonhoeffer's story is fascinating. His life and his death, many, many who would claim that his death is a, the death of a martyr when he was executed by Hitler and the Nazi regime in the 1940s at the age of 39. This morning, though, I want to share quickly a little bit about the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer leading up to that point. Bonhoeffer had been studying at, a, at an underground German seminary in the, in the 1930s until the Nazis came and closed it down in 1937. It was, a, however, during this time that Bonhoeffer penned what many would call the Christian classic, Life Together. And in that book, Bonhoeffer explains what it is to live in community, to live life in unity. As the theme of unity throughout the book, Life Together, parallels with our theme of unity as we consider church life. In his book, Bonhoeffer explains, quote, It's not in our life that God's help and presence must still be proved, but rather God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did to Israel and to His Son, Jesus Christ, than to seek what God intends to do for us today. The fact that Jesus died is more important than the fact that I shall die. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too shall be raised on the last day. I find no salvation in my life history, but only in the history of Jesus Christ. Only he who allows himself to be found in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, in his cross, in his resurrection, is with God and God with him, end quote. In other words, our life together, our church life, as we seek to glorify God by living out the gospel, is based on our union 
with Christ, and in union with Christ, we find our common bond and our common union with each other. As we consider the importance of unity in the church, in our passage this morning, we should also take note that this passage, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5, is part of a much larger section of Scripture that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. In fact, chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 4, verse 21, is about unity. It's an exhortation to the church in Colossae to depart from disunity and disagreement. Just to highlight, to show the importance of this appeal to unity, Paul applies more words in chapter 1, verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 21, than he does in several other complete letters that he writes. In fact, there are more words in this passage of Scripture than there are in Titus and Philemon combined. Why is that? Why would Paul spend so much time discussing unity in the church? Well, because the idea of unity is important. It was important for the church in Corinth, and it is important for us here this morning. So we might ask the question, what is at the root of this disunity? What is causing the disagreement and the division? What is making this church in Corinth fight and quarrel? Paul tells us that the root of the division in the church is a disagreement over teachers and leaders. There's this hero worship going on. And even more so than the hero worship that was happening, there was an elevation of self. It was self-ambition and self-importance that is being highlighted in the church at Corinth. The church was attempting to advance themselves in status through their association with other preachers and teachers, like Paul and Apollos, and John Piper, and John MacArthur. You see what I did there? <laughs> they even add Christ to the idea of, I follow Christ. Now, the idea of follow is the simple term that they go with or they are students of. And certainly, there's nothing wrong with having pastors that we follow but the Corinthians were taking it to a whole new level, and they were elevating themselves because of it, causing disunity. But Paul actually points to something even deeper than that, that disunity, that reasoning of following other preachers. Paul points to a more serious and insidious root. And that's the bold and insane statement and stance that the Corinthians are taking in their own wisdom, or in other words, in human wisdom. The Corinthians knew best. The notion that human wisdom and philosophy or their own strength and power is what they needed was what they were standing on as their only hope. So Paul gives them a warning, not just comparing and contrasting foolishness and weakness or strength and weakness, foolishness and wisdom. The warning to the church is actually much more serious than that. It's the warning that they are on the verge of accusing God of foolishness. 
They are certainly guilty of pride in their own wisdom and strength, and they are guilty of forgetting what Paul and others had taught them. They're forgetting the gospel message. They have forgotten the wisdom and power that actually brought them union with Christ and a new life together. So Paul, in only the way that Paul can, with love and with grace, seeks to teach them and correct them, reminding them in our passage here this morning that in order to function as the church without division, the church first needs to rely on true wisdom and power that unite. As you can see in your bulletin, that will serve as our title for this morning's passage, Wisdom and Power That Unite. Paul's purpose in this passage is to exhort the church to unity. Again, his main purpose is to exhort the church to unity. Right before our passage in chapter 1, verse 18, in that section, chapter 1, verse 10 through 17, Paul tells the church that the gospel requires the church to be unified. The gospel message requires the church to be unified. And in chapter 1, verse 18 through 2, 5, Paul shows us that the wisdom and power that unite can be seen in three ways. This will serve as our outline for this morning. Wisdom and power that unite can be seen first in the cross of Christ, and we see this in verses 18 through 25. Second, in those called by God in verses 26 through 31, and third, in Paul's preaching, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. So first, in the cross of Christ, second, in those called by God, and third, in Paul's preaching. Let's jump right into our first point, the cross of Christ, and we find this again in verses 18 through 25. And the first thing that I want to share with you is that Paul starts off this passage with his thesis statement, his main idea. Verse 18, look there in the text, and Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the main idea of chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul says, for, or we can say, because, because of what? The word of the cross. I want to take a little bit of time, and we're going to spend a lot of time on our first point. But I want to take a little bit of time here, right here on verse 18, to unpack this a little bit more. It's interesting that Paul uses this particular phrase. I mean, he could have easily just said, for the word of the gospel. He could have said, for the word of good news. But he says the word of the cross. And part of the reason why he says it is because of what chapter 1, verse 17 says. Look there, one verse up, and Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, verse 17, first things first, Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. Paul is not demeaning or diminishing baptism. What Paul is doing, though, and what he is trying to communicate here is that he was called by Christ 
for the primary purpose of preaching the gospel. And as we said earlier, Paul's exhortation is that the gospel requires unity. So look again at the end of verse 17. Paul's called to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Not with words of eloquent wisdom literally translates not with wisdom of speech. And in other words, Paul is not preaching with human wisdom. This isn't um, Paul coming and getting fancy with the message of the gospel. We we have to pause here and say a little bit about the historical context of the Greco-Roman world when Paul wrote this letter. The idea of not speaking with words of eloquent wisdom is a reference to um, the popularity of the rhetorical speakers of the day those who excelled in rhetoric and philosophy. These folks were called sophists, skilled in debating and flashy speeches. And at the time, people would follow these rhetorics. They would follow them around like groupies. Paul is not one of those people. He's not a rhetorical... He's not a rhetoric. I don't know the right word there. And it's not because he can't be. Paul was very skilled. He was very skilled at speaking. But Paul is more concerned and more applied to the content of his message. So Paul isn't going to get fancy. He's not going to get clever and sophisticated with his speech. He's only going to speak the truth. He's going to preach the gospel so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its power. That's how verse 17 ties us to Paul's main point in our passage this morning. Again, verse 18 says, For or because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is where we start to see wisdom and power that unite start to unfold the word of the cross, or we can say the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about, again, the content, and he's talking about the delivery of the content of the message of the cross. Not with human wisdom, but with faithful preaching. Not with human wisdom, but instead with God's wisdom. And the word of the cross is power. Verse 18, second half, Paul actually breaks out two categories of people. Look again there at the text, and we see one, those who are perishing, and two, those who are being saved. A little side note, every culture in all of history has placed people into categories. They have classified people. But we need to take note here, especially those who have placed their trust in Jesus. Paul is saying that there are only two categories of people. There are only two classes. You are either saved or you are perishing. Not Jews and Greeks, not slaves and free, not liberal and conservative, not black and white, not American or French, not whatever. Saved or perishing. 
Ultimately, that's all that matters, whether you are being saved or you are perishing. Now, I want us to pay a little bit more attention to where these two categories of people, saved and perishing, they diverge from one another. This point of separation between how they respond to the message of the cross. First, those who are perishing, they consider it folly. Your Bible translation may say the word foolishness. They consider it foolish. Now, the word folly or foolishness, it actually uh, means absurd or ridiculous. It's not just silly and funny. It's absurd and ridiculous. Some dictionaries actually use the word stupid. Those who are perishing in verse 18 are those who are completely rejecting Christ. And Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that there is a reason why they are rejecting Christ. It's because they think the message of the cross is ridiculous. It's absurd. They believe that it is absolute absurdity that the Messiah, the one who was chosen to save and deliver the world, would come and die, and especially die on a cross. This idea that God, the creator of all things, would send someone, and not just anyone, his only son, to live an ordinary life as a carpenter's son, to teach, yes, and some people would even acknowledge that he was a great teacher, to heal, yes, he healed, and some people would acknowledge he was a great healer, but he died on a cross. He died the most horrific death in the most horrific way. Those who reject the message of the cross are way too wise to follow that. They're way too smart to fall for that. How could they? How could anyone, any, any human being with a human brain or a half a human brain, according to these people, follow a Savior who just died the most horrific death in the most horrific way? Paul's point here is human wisdom is not just resistant to the message of the cross. Human wisdom is actually incapable of following the message of the cross. That one word that we love to see in Scripture, but, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is the power of God. For us here this morning, here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, what makes us a church? We mentioned earlier that we agree on essentials. Yes, we do. We agree with the covenant. Again, yes. We are baptized and brought into membership, both yes and yes again. But those essentials and that covenant and everything else is set upon a cornerstone, and that cornerstone is Christ 
and him crucified. Christ is what unifies us, not anything else. And why? Why is it that it is only Christ that unifies us? Paul says, because God's wisdom is seen in the cross. Those perishing disagree and consider it foolish or folly, and they also consider it powerless. But those who do believe are being saved. And it's not only wisdom, but the cross is the power of God. Believers, do you understand that power? Do we get it, the power of the cross? Do we understand that that's the same power that raised Christ from the dead? It's the same power that crushed him on the cross. It's the same power that raises us up in newness of life. Friends, we need to get that power. We need to understand it. We need to understand and not take it for granted because that is the power that unites us in this church, in our communities. Paul's not making a new claim here either. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul is referring here to what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9. I'm sorry, in chapter 29 of Isaiah. Paul uses the Scripture here to remind the church of who God is, that there's no room at all for our human self-interest and our own human wisdom. The Old Testament already tells us what God is going to do with that type of wisdom. He's going to destroy it. And now in the New Testament, under the spotlight of the cross, human wisdom scurries for the shadows. Paul says, picking up in verse 20, Paul asks for the rhetorical, uh, four rhetorical questions in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, these first three questions that Paul asks in verse 20 support that reference to Isaiah. In the context of Isaiah, Israel is claiming to honor God with their mouths only. They're giving God lip service. They do not love Him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They believe that they can hide from God, and even worse, Israel in this context believes that they can outsmart God. Now, before we get too offended by Israel's rebellion, all humans, every one of us, is prone to think that we are smarter than God. We are prone to think that we can provide God with a means to get things that we want. All humans are prone to think that God must provide us with the explanation and justification for everything that He does. And God does not play that way. In fact, He annihilates that kind of human foolishness. That's where our fourth question comes in. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world already? Rhetorical answer, yes. Look again at Verse 21, for since 
And Paul loves the word for in this passage. For since or because in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. One commentator explains it this way, quote, Paul highlights how God made worldly wisdom look foolish through what he and others preached, and that is a crucified Messiah. This pleased God because he wisely planned to save believers through what the wise world considered folly, end quote. Now, to further explain his own point, Paul continues by highlighting the idolatry of worldly wisdom in verses 22 through 24. Look there in the text that it says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You may be familiar, but Jews in this context expected a Messiah. They looked forward to the Messiah, but they expected a warrior. They wanted a soldier, a leader to come and save them. They did not want a suffering servant. On top of that, the cross to the Jewish people in this time period signified that God's curse was upon the one who hanged on the cross. So they naturally, in human wisdom, rejected the cross of Christ. They considered it revolting. Gentiles or Greeks, interchangeable words there, were fascinated with worldly knowledge and philosophy. They sought out the rational and the logical the beautiful. Crucifixion to them was a complete and utter defeat. They could only see the cross of Christ as absurd and vile. as, As we approach this week, just think about it. Paul only preaches Christ crucified, meaning it's ugly, it's vile, it's revolting, and it's absurd to the world. But to those who are called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, that's everyone who is called, Christ the power of God. Now, what Paul did right there in verse 24 is he just renamed Jesus from Christ crucified to Christ the power of God. And then he adds another name, Christ, the wisdom of God. Verse 25, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. In other words, church in Corinth, if you want to consider the cross of Christ as folly and weakness, understand this. God's supposed foolishness far exceeds any level of intelligence His creation has to offer. Just like God's supposed weakness completely overwhelms the strength and power of man. The wisdom and the power that unite the church is found in the cross of Christ because God, by His grace, 
chose what is absolutely incomprehensible to the world to prove not only that He is all-knowing and all-wise, but He is also all-powerful and His strength is immeasurable. And yet still today, there are those who laugh at the message of the cross. As believers, we ought to expect that from the world because they find it absurd. But friends, I have to remind us that this message is not to unbelievers. This message is to the church. This message is to, yes, the church in Corinth, and by extension, it is to us here at Crawford this morning. And the message that Paul is giving is stay united. Do not follow the wisdom and power of this world Instead, know that the wisdom and power of God in the message of the gospel as displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ will bind and unite us to the end of time for the glory of God. And that leads us, transition us transitions us to our second point, that we see the wisdom and power that unite in those who are called. Verses 26 through 31. So the church in Corinth is fighting. They're having disagreements. They're divided. And Paul has exhorted them to stay united, to be of the same mind and judgment on the basis of the power and wisdom of God that they already have seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. And then in this section, 26 through 31, Paul reminds them of their calling and specifically who they were when they were called. Look again at verse 26. For consider your calling, points back to verse 25. Verse 25 says, Paul Paul is actually telling them that the foolishness of God is, uh, is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. 26, because just remember who you are. Not many of you were considered wise, not many of you were powerful, and not many of you were of nobility. Remember who you were when you were called. Verse 27 and 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I want us to use these three verses and look at them in contrast to one another. Look at verse 26 where it says, not many of you were wise. The contrast, verse 27, God chose what is foolish. 26, not many of you were powerful. 27, God chose what is weak. 26 again, not many were of nobility. 28, God chose the low and despised. I want us to notice first the phrase, not many, is used three times in verse 26. So, Paul does not say, none of you were wise. He says, not many of you were wise, powerful, of nobility. This is a reference to the context of what Corinth was. There was probably some members of the Corinthian church that were of higher status. 
But Paul also uses the phrase, God chose three times. This is referring to God's sovereign choice of people in an effectual way. That is, it's God's choice that enables people to believe, and it also ensures that they do believe. We call this the effective calling, because God's call comes with the power to make sure that it does what it demands. But why did Paul use the phrase, God chose? Verse 29 tells us, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Human nature would have us believe that if we were full of wisdom, influential, and highfalutin celebrity geniuses, that of course it would be because of who we were that we were chosen, right? But God chose what is foolish, weak, low, and despised, so that we could not boast. The reason that God chose is so that we could not boast, and the result in verse 30, and because of Him, that's because of God and His choosing of you, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. For believers, a crucified Messiah is wisdom from God. Instead of boasting in our own wisdom or our own influence and our own pedigree, we boast in Jesus and Christ alone, the true wisdom who is our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If you're a believer this morning, Paul is talking to you, to you, but not about you. It can't be about what we do or what we did, how good we are compared to how bad we were. It's not a comparison to those around us either. I know that is so tempting, right? Like, I know he's talking about fill in the blank. Don't boast in your wisdom. In modern language, that sounds like this. Don't boast about the two or four or six hours you spend each day listening to all the right podcasts and all the right books. Don't boast in your own influence. Modern language translation. Don't boast in the number of hours and keystrokes you rack up fixing everybody else's flawed theology. Don't boast in your pedigree. This one was a little tougher. Don't boast about being the student of this celebrity pastor or that celebrity pastor. There is nothing at all about what Paul is saying that should point to self. We are chosen because it was God's choice. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Nothing at all to do with what we have done or what we could ever do 
So we ought to empty ourselves of our self-importance. Bonhoeffer referenced that in that quote that I gave earlier where he said, I find no, no salvation in my life history. No salvation in who I was. He could add no salvation in who I'm going to be. It is the glorious truth that for believers that Jesus is our righteousness. That means that Jesus is standing before a three times holy God has been given to us. It has been permanently credited to our account. Paul says, know your calling, brothers and sisters, and know that you're being sanctified, that you are being made holy and set apart. We will live an everlasting life, sinless, so that we can forever worship him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And we were nothing. We were not wise, we were not powerful, and we were not of nobility. But we were called by God and redeemed, freed from the bondage of sin and death because of the power of God, because of God's power on the cross in the death of Jesus, we have been set free. Believers, we are in Jesus because Paul says in verse 31, we are in Jesus so that as it is written, let no one boast let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul takes this again from the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. In other words, he says that those who boast must boast in the Jesus, the Messiah, and not in anything or anyone else. We are in Christ, and based on that union and that union alone, we are called to unity in the church in his body. Which brings us to our point three, Paul's preaching. We see wisdom and power that unite in Paul's preaching, and what I actually wanted to title this was, we see wisdom and power that unite in the weakness of Paul's preaching. And before we go too far, I am not saying that Paul was weak. He was certainly not a weak preacher. But Paul has something to say here in chapter 2, verse 1, about what he preached and how he preached it. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you, or did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Does that sound familiar? It's all the way back at the beginning when we talked about verse 17. Paul says that he came to preach, but not with words of eloquent wisdom. Here in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says lofty speech or wisdom. It's the same concept, and it's the concept of human wisdom. Human wisdom has never and will never be capable of bringing someone to know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith cannot happen through human wisdom. Paul himself was brilliant. As far as pedigree, confidence in the flesh, Paul says in Philippians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, if anyone thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Paul was full of knowledge. He was trained from the time that he was a little boy. But in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Chapter 2, verse 2 sounds familiar as well, right? Back to chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross. That is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is only going to preach. He is only going to herald the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the very same word of the cross that he talked about in verse 18 of chapter 1. And then he continues in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Here Paul talks about being with the Corinthians in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It almost seems out of place. If you know anything about Paul, that is not the words that come to mind when you think of him. It certainly is not what I think of. But what does Paul mean by this, that he was weak and afraid? I don't, I don't think that's it, but I do think, at least in part, when Paul says weakness, that he was with them in fear and trembling, and his speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom. He's repeating that his only message is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, regardless of who he is as a preacher, regardless of whether or not he's a fancy speaker according, according to worldly standards. He's not impressive in appearance. The speakers of the day, these sophists, relied on their own strength and ability. But Paul's message, there at the end of verse 4, Paul's message was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, not of himself. It's not about Paul's strength. Paul just delivered the message of Christ crucified, and he does so in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That actually sounds familiar too. Verse 18 of chapter 1 again says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul puts a set of bookends at, on this passage. There's an inscription on the bookends, and it says, The power of God. Wisdom and power that unite is on full display in the cross of Jesus Christ and in the people that God chooses. It's also on display in Paul's preaching. We can say this confidently because we know that God's wisdom has turned the world upside down. Jews thought their Savior would be a mighty warrior. He was not. He was completely opposite of that. 
He was a suffering servant. Gentiles desired a brilliant plan and philosophy for salvation, and instead they got a substitutionary death, which was ridiculous to them. Both of them, both groups or categories of people suffered from the notion of self-importance. Selfishness is a cancer that seeks to destroy any hope of unity, especially in the church. The enemy of the church, Satan, thrives when selfishness causes divisions and disagreements. After all, there's so much that we have to disagree on, right? So much that the world disagrees about every single day. Everything from politics to sports to economics to red or blue. From whatever to what in the world could we possibly agree on? Self-promotion and self-importance is cancerous, and it kills unity. Again, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together, I find no salvation in my own history, but only in the history of Jesus Christ. As believers, we have to be grounded in the word of the cross. As believers, we have to remember who we were when we were called. And we cannot forget the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the wisdom and power of God, and it will unite us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity when we confess, Lord, that we are prone to self-importance. We are prone to forget the true power of the cross, the true power of its message and content. So we pray that by your grace that you would make us a church that is united in that message of the cross. We thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would Give us increased understanding of your power and your wisdom through your word in a way that keeps us united for your glory and the advance of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that if there are those here this morning who do not know you, that you would reveal to them your wisdom and power, that they would understand the message of the cross, and that message would transform them by your grace so that they could walk in newness of life. Father, we pray that you would help us to recall your endless power that has imputed on us the righteousness of Jesus and through his finished work and the power of your Holy Spirit that we walk continuously being sanctified, free from sin and death of this life, fully redeemed in Christ. And we pray these things for your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ, the power of God. Amen.